This is the offering now that you're going to bring concerning me. If you notice in this parasha, the last two chapters have to do with the bringing of the offerings. For Passover, Sabbaths, Yom Kippur, Feast of Boots, don't you Sukkot? Very interesting. Now why is he ending the parasha with restoring? Because that's what the Messiah is doing in these latter days. He's restoring back. And why is he restoring back? Because somewhere down the line, we broke the covenant. And it's not an excuse to continue breaking it. That's the whole thing. Because if you notice in here, he doesn't end the parasha by saying, okay, continue doing what the Midianites were doing. Just continue in the same practices that they were doing. It doesn't matter. No, it matters. So we're going to see really what is taking place with the parasha of Pinehas. Now, we ended last week with Balak. And I want to first start by understanding that the story of Pinehas has been majorly abused today. What do I mean by that? People are using Pinchas to use a vigilante attitude. You know, I'm going to be like Pinchas. I'm going to take matter in my own hands and kind of take care of business. Because Pinchas did. You know? Well, he did. But what we failed to realize that in last week's parasha, Moses gave the order. Pinchas didn't take it upon himself to say, I'm going to go ahead and slaughter all these idolaters. Moses was the judge. The order proceeded from the mouth of the judge. Specifically Moses, because he was the judge of the judges. But what happened? None of the judges in Israel did anything. Moses said, go ahead and take the spear and put it upon each man who committed the fornication and the idolatry with a Midianite woman. What happened? The judges stood there and did nothing. Now is where Pinchas picks up the story of Pinchas. And divine order was given. The judges didn't act. So Pinchas didn't act on his own authority. He acted upon the order of the judge. Makes sense. Let's put things in the right order because a lot of, again, the story of Pinchas We've seen so many crazy things come out of this. People taking the law into their own hands and using Pinchas as a support. Well, I'm following Torah, I'm taking the laws into my own hands. Wrong. Read it in context, folks. The, the order was given. Now, what happened was that upon the order given, no one did anything, and upon no one doing anything, one man, one man, stood up when no one else did. Upon divine order given. So now this is what we picked up in the story of Pinchas. Amen? So the parasha starts with Numbers 25, 10 through 11, right? And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So I want to start off, first of all, with verse 11. Because it is in verse 11 that the Father is revealing. Remember, in the names, the Father reveals something. So let's look at this. It says, Pinchas ben Eleazar ben Aharon HaKohen. Okay, well, let's start first of all with the name of Pinchas. Okay, it literally means like the mouth of brass. It can be like the mouth of a serpent also. It has all these different meanings. But collectively and, and 
the most accepted uh, uh, interpretation for his name is the mouth of brass. Now, what is the significance about the mouth of brass? What does brass signify in Scripture? Judgment. Here we go. Judgment. The mouth of judgment. Now, we're going to see something prophetic about this mouth of judgment. Now, it says that the Pinchas, which is the mouth of judgment, is also Ben Eliezer Ben Aharon HaKohen. In other words, he is, Pinchas is the one who has the mouth of judgment, who also is the son of Eliezer. What is Eliezer? Let's look at this in here. Ben Eliezer means God's helper. A helpmate, an aid. So he is also known as God's helper, but he is the son also who is also God's helper. Now this word Eleazar actually connects and it has the understanding in Hebrew of Azar in here. Azarah. Azarah connects with a wife. Like a wife is a helpmate. That's kind of like the understanding. So the son is kind of like the active role of being a helpmate, which is Pinchas, which is the mouth of brass. He is also the son of Aharon. Where is Aharon? Light. So Pinchas is the son of Eleazar, which is God's helper. And he is also the son of Aaron, which is the light. And he is also Hakohen. He's also a priest. Any of those ring a bell to you? We're going to see how this really connects with the Mashiach in here in a minute. So look, Revelation 2.16 says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with what? The sword of my mouth. Why is it that Messiah, when he returns back, he is going to judge with his mouth? What did Pinchas do? Again, mouth of the brass judgment. Look. Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. See, we got to understand that what Pinchas did in here, it's essentially what the Messiah is going to do. See, because we always have this understanding that the Messiah is loving, kind, and he is. But we leave him there. That's it. He's loving, he's kind, and Okay, he's gracious, and we stop there. But he's more than that, folks. He's also a judge. Watch. What a lot of times what we view as wrong, folks, is also for the betterment of the camp. Keep that in mind, because we got to understand that we have to see through God's eyes, not our own. Because in reality, in Revelation 19:15, if, if we read this on the surface, where do we see God's grace in it? I'm saying from a human perspective and understanding. Where do we see God's grace there? Where's his grace? Why is he striking the nations? Why is he killing them with the mouth, with his sword? I thought he was gracious. We have to understand and see things through the eyes of God. Amen? So it says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will threat the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So look, Hirsch Humash opens up by saying this. His name, if you notice in the Hebrew, has a small yod in it. It actually is Pinechas, okay? And 
and interesting in the Torah score, if you look at it, it is a very small yod in there. It says the, the yod is small. It is possible that his name was originally Pinchas. That's a different Pinchas and Pinechas. So it's saying that Hirsch, uh, Hirsch rather is proposing in here that his name was Pinchas, but after his bold display, a yod was added to his name. Now we see this very common in Scripture. For instance, Joshua. You know, we see that the yod was added, Yahoshua. So we, we see that a lot of times a letter is added to somebody's name after a act is done. So it, he here, no different. So it says in here, a yod was added to his name, and from then on he was called Phinehas. Nahas, okay, in Hebrew, being the same as Nahetz, which means my mouth urged him to it, more specifically. In other words, what Pinchas did was, wasn't out of his own authority, but rather it was literally God putting his own words in his mouth. God literally speaking through Pinchas to the people. Kind of like a prophet, same thing, as the, as the Father spoke. So it says, my mouth urged him to it. He was driven to it by the mouth of God, essentially. For it was purely zeal for my word that was the motive of his deed. Now, that's interesting because a lot of times we need to check our motives too. A lot of times we like, well, I'm going to go ahead and execute God's vengeance. But a lot of times it's our own vengeance. Not God's vengeance. We need to make sure that it is God's vengeance. Amen? So look in here. Sahedrin 82b says this, Binchas had put an end to a devastating plague that had taken 24,000 people, folks, in this plague. Interesting. In, in retribution for the immorality with the Moabites and the Midianite woman. Instead of applauding him, however, the people accused him of wanton murder. In other words, the act that Pinchas did, the people, instead of saying, wow, good job for righteousness, they turned around and accused him of murder. Interesting, folks, because you know, we know different today. We applaud wicked acts. You know, in the eyes of the people, they saw that as wickedness because he's killing a fellow Israelite. It's not like he's killing a Midianite. He's killing an Israelite. So under the people's eyes, they're looking at Pinchas now like, okay, this guy's gone crazy. <coughs> He's killing his own people. Where is God in this, essentially? Look. Instead of, again, instead of applauding him, however, the people accused him of wanton murder and protested that this grandson of someone who had fattened calves to be sacrificed to idols had the gall to kill a prince in Israel. Pinecha's father was married to a daughter of Jethro, according to the sages of Israel, a former Midianite priest. Interesting. So this is, they already had, they already had, you know, a grudge against him because he was somewhat connected to the Midianites, and yet he's killing Israel now, killing an Israelite. So, in response, God declared that far from murder, Pinchas had committed an act that saved countless lives. Indeed, God called him a descendant of Aaron, who was distinguished for his love of mankind and the pursuit of peace. And what was more, God rewarded him with appointing him a Kohen, which means a priest, which denoted a covenant of peace, not 
death, essentially. So Numbers 25.10 says in the end, The Lord said to Moses, King Hassan, Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, says, And he has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So the act of Pinchas did indeed, and it didn't hear. What did it do? In Hebrew, it says, "Heshiv et hamatim." That word hamatim, if you notice, there's an aleph connected to the hamatim. Hamatim literally means like fury, like fire, like literally smoke coming out of your nostrils, angry. Why am I showing this, folks? Because that gives you an idea how Jesus, Yeshua feels about us coming outside of the covenant. How does he see that? How does he view that? What happened when they built the golden calf, folks? And they call it Yehovah? What happened there? And they did it for the honor of him? What happened there? Was he happy? Did he say, oh, Moses, they honored me in a different way, but it's okay. No, his wrath was upon them. And the same thing in here with the Midianites woman. Remember, was it about the Midianites woman, really? Because a lot of times we, we get tunnel vision, and we're thinking, well, the, they were just, you know, committing sexual morality with the Midianites woman. It wasn't so much about the Midianites woman, folks. If you read, it says, they bowed down to the sacrifice of their gods. This is the issue. In other words, through the seduction of a woman, it led Israel to follow foreign worship, essentially. So it says in here, Heshiv et hamati me'al b'nei Israel. okay? It says, Bekano et kinati. Now this word here for bekanot et kinati is a double play word. They both mean one and the same. It is from the word kanam, which literally means to be, have zeal, to be jealous, okay? It says in here that Pinchas was Bekanot et kinati. Another aletav in there, pointing to something, something messianic in here. Do we have the zeal of God within us? Is the question. Because that's one of the things that uh, the Father was looking at Pinchas is that he had a zeal, but he has et kinati. He had my zeal. See, a lot of times we have religious zeal. That doesn't count, folks. He's not interested in your religious zeal. He's interested in that you have his zeal. There's a difference. Don't come to me with your religious practices and say, I'm, I'm zealous for God. But yet you're walking contrary to God by your own zeal. But we're going to cover that in more in just a minute. So it says in here, Bekanot Erkinati Betoham. He says that they have the, he that, that he had the zeal that was he was zealous for my zeal among them Bethlehem, among the people of Israel. That's kind of like what's happening today, folks. When we look at Israel, the people of Israel worldwide, from among those people, there are people who have the zeal of Hashem in them. And this is what we're looking at as to why. Now it says in here, Heshiv et Hamati. He literally, what is this word? Shuv. In Hebrew. It means that because of Pinchas, zeal for God, and because of the act of what he did, it literally a shoof, it went back, it turned back. His wrath, his anger was turned back. Very interesting. 
What is it that we're doing today in order to turn back God's anger towards his people? A lot of us feel that what just us today, one person doesn't make a difference. We feel, why me? What can I possibly do? There's millions of people in the world. Nobody's following. Everybody's doing what they want to do. I feel helpless. Can I really contribute? You know what? Pink has probably felt the same way. No, you got to think about it. There was millions of people here. Among all these millions of people, only he was the one who stood up in righteousness. Look. Let's see what the sages of Israel say about this. Hirsch Humash says this. The word kana in the kal form expresses primarily an inner attitude, essentially. Because the way it's written in the Hebrew, it's, an, it's literally an inner attitude. A person adopts in his mind someone else's cause. I'm going to repeat that again. A person adopts in his mind someone else's cause. In this case, Pinchas adopted God's righteousness for his own cause, and essentially, look, and regards it as though it were his own. Essentially, you know, this is kind of like we preach every week. The Torah needs to be yours. Kind of like with Pinchas. Pinchas wasn't saying, well, I'm doing this for God. Even though he was, it was more personal. Because the Torah was his. That's a good question for us today. Is the Torah yours today? Or is it still a distinct book that you don't relate to? This is the zeal, folks. When we're talking about zeal, these are elements that we need to adopt today in order to have real zeal of God. Look what it says in here. This uh, vowelization of the cow form indicates here that Pinchas' act was not merely an external exhibition. In, the, in other words, it wasn't just something that he was doing outwardly, but there was an inner motive for him doing this. But the result of a deeper feeling for the betrayal of God's word was to him like a betrayal of his own cause. In other words, the people betraying God's word, he took that personal. He took that personal. Why did he take it personal, folks? Relationship. You know, when you love someone so much, when you have respect for someone, when you revere someone, when that person is damaged by someone else, it's as if that person did it to you. I don't know if you ever felt that way, but I have. When you love somebody and you respect somebody and you revere somebody, if that person is insulted, it's like you did it to me. Even though you never addressed to me, you addressed to him, but addressing to him as if you did it to me. This is the kind of desire that Abba wants from us, folks. And I mean, here's a side note. If we cannot have that respect for one another, for one another, then we are pretty much nullifying all this. Because that's why Yeshua said, as much as you did to the little one of these, you did it unto me. Yeshua has a zeal for his own people, folks. You know, what, uh, what Rabbi Hershon here is explaining is something that we can collaborate in Scripture. That's why he said that when I was in jail, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the disciples went, did we do that? He said, as much as you did to these little ones, you did it to me. That's exactly the 
the attitude and the spirit of Pinkas. And we need to start adopting that because today, kind of like what the scripture says, in the latter days, the, the people's love is going to grow cold. We are growing cold. Well, he insulted him. I don't care. That's him. Even though that is a person that you honor, that is a person that you should revere and that you should have respect for, we don't stand for anybody anymore. Pinkas stood for somebody, folks. We need to start doing the same today. So it says in here, moving on in here, um, his asserted my rights and enforced them in the nation's midst and thereby saved the whole nation from the destruction that would have befallen it had I been forced to assert my rights myself. What Rabbi Hirsch is explaining here is that if, if Pinchas would have not done what he did, Literally, the full wrath of God would have fell upon all the people. You know how many people would have survived? Zero. Well, except Pinkas, of course. Look, a society, Rabbi Hirsch continues in here, a society in which there is no champion of God's word. That's what we need today in this society. Champions of God's word. Okay? It's lost, he says. In other words, if we don't have pinchases out there who are standing for righteousness and doing what is right, even if it offends your brother or your sister, the society will become lost, essentially. Which, by the way, I don't think he's kind of making this thing up because if we look worldwide, look where the world is today. We are super lost. We are so lost that even if we actually got a GPS, we wouldn't be able to find our way. Look. So it says in here, we need to be a champion of God's word, okay? If there's no champion of God's word, it's lost. And God, and thereby, is lost also to itself and to its own future. For it is oblivious to God's rights over society. We need to understand, folks, that everything that's on earth right now as wicked as it seems, our government system, the courts, all these things are literally an image of what's in heaven. I want to make that very clear because we really, a lot of us today have a anti-government mindset and we need to be very careful. The government is not against you right now, folks. We don't need to be running. You don't need to be rebelling. It's friendly captivity. You know what a lot of people are looking like today? They look, we're looking like Barjobas. You know who Barjoba was? Okay, a man who stood up against Rome, even though Rome wasn't doing anything to him. And what happened? How did that end it, folks? Don't, don't end up being like a Barjoba. I'm not saying that the government is friendly, but right now they're not asking you to give up God's word. They're not telling you you need to stop Torah. They're not enforcing any of these things to you. The things are there for us because guess what? What's bound in heaven is bound on earth. The institutions that are here as a reflection of what is up there. And if we're not submitting down here to the basic authority, we are rebelling against God. Simply put, it's time to start getting our heads straight, folks. Because again, zeal without no wisdom can be dangerous. You can look like a Bachoba and you're going to die like him too. So it's time to start getting our heads straight and start moving forward. So look, it says in here, 
that, that society is oblivious to God's rights over society. This is especially true of Jewish society, of Israel, whose very existence depends on the word li. What is li? To me. That word to me is, is expressing God saying to Israel, you are mine. Which God pronounced upon Israel, thereby dedicating every member of Israel in all aspects of his existence to be his. For all eternity, he will assert his right of ownership over Israel. And sometimes we need a reminder of that, folks. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to him. And if you belong to him, you need to submit. That's a very hard word for all of us. We have a major issue submitting to the things that God wants us to do. Because 99.9% .9 stands against everything that our flesh wants. That's the issue there. Israel is God's. Oh, it ceases to exist, essentially. Think about it. There is no Israel if there's no God. Whether the term Israel came about anyways. It's not a name that came out from a natural birth. It was a name that was pronounced by God himself to Jacob. It was a change of name to, from Jacob. So Israel. It's a covenant name, folks. So it says in here, Pinchas was but one man, and it was but one manly deed that he performed. Now, I remind you that Pinchas was still flesh and blood like you and I are. He was not divine. He, 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 I mean, he was just like us. One deed that he acted made a big difference. Look. And although he was singular among his people, he saved the whole nation, folks. We need to start adapting to this mindset that the little things that we do make a big difference, folks. Because, you know, we are a society that we are drunken by what we see. If we don't see masses of people coming in, we feel we're not making a difference. That's just human nature. But the reality is sometimes it's the small things that we do. As a matter of fact, some of the sages of Israel said that the small yod on Pinchas' name also can indicate of small deeds that we do. Because the yod in Hebrew represents what? The hand. The deeds that we do. They don't have to be great deeds. They can be small deeds that make a big difference. Amen? One man stands when nobody else. Now, Pinchas, we're going to see, now that we see this character of his, by his name, right? He is the son of Aaron, the son of light. He is also the son of Eleazar, which is God's helper. He is also a Kohen, which is a priest. Look, we're going to see how is it that he foreshadows Yeshua. In what way and how does that reflect in us? Nachmanides opens up by saying this, The Holy One, blessed be He, informed Moses that he would give Pinchas a good reward for his zeal, because he was zealous for his God and for the righteousness which he did for Israel by bringing about... Nachmanides says that he brought atonement for Israel. In other words, the deed that Pinchas did literally brought an atonement for Israel. Now, what's interesting about what the Ramban says in here is that the Ramban connects this one, his words that he says in here, he connects it to Psalms 110. Why am I saying this? Because we need to understand what Hazal is thinking. 
What is it that they're thinking? What thoughts are going through their mind as they informing this to us? Psalms 110, which he connects with what Pinchas did, opens a revelation about Yeshua that's undeniable. Let's see what the, the Rabban says in here. So he says that he brought atonement for them so that they not all die in the plague. Now, Psalms 110.4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Ramban connects the zeal of Pinchas and the promise of Pinchas to Melchizedek, the priest, the eternal priest forever. Very interesting. Because how is it that Nachmanides connects the priest of Melchizedek? Because he says in here that you are a priest forever. The same wording in here, a Kohen Olam, it's what was he said in 2510 when he says that because of what Pinchas did, the reward is that his what? His seed will be what? A generation of Kohens, a priest. So Nachmanides is connecting that eternal promise to what Psalms 110.4 says, Melchizedek. Now this is where Yeshua comes into the picture. Look, Shadows of Messiah says this, Like Pinchas, Messiah acted zealously on behalf of the Lord. Now that's a really bold statement, because why is it that Pinchas was bold again? For the righteousness of the Lord. True? At least we can agree with that. Yeshua was zealous for his father's righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means that Yeshua's coming, Yeshua's purpose, Yeshua's teachings could not be lawlessness. Here's the test, folks. Because if Pinchah was bold for what? The righteousness of the Lord, and Yeshua was, was bold for his father's righteousness, then they both were fighting for righteousness. Which means... Jesus did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. He could have not. Because that would disqualify him as a pinchas or a shadow pinchas. Which the sage is connecting with the Messiah, by the way. So, let's continue on in here. Like pinchas, he turned God's wrath away from his people. Isn't that true? Isn't that what Yeshua did? He turned away the wrath of God for those who will come and repent. Let's go on in here. The Messiah offered himself in the place of Israel, suffering the sin of the nation. Just as with Pinchas, God has made an eternal covenant of peace with Yeshua, granting him a perpetual priesthood. Now this is what the sages of Israel connected. Nachmanides the Ramban connects Psalms 110, which is Melchizedek, to what Pinchas did. Why? Because Pinchas was what? Promised an eternal priesthood. This is where it all connects, guys. Look, like Pinchas, Yeshua was zealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Isn't that true? He did. It's a lot of similarities to Pinchas and Yeshua. So, being zealous, folks, is not bad if, and only if, it is accompanied with wisdom. This is the problem that we have in the body today. There's a lot of a lot of zeal. A lot of zeal going around. 
problem is that there's not a lot of wisdom accompanied with that. We're not mixing wisdom with zeal. Thus, we're looking like fools before the people. And we're making decisions in our lives that is kind of backfiring at us as well. Look, Proverbs 19.2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. You know, if you really want wisdom, guys, study the Proverbs. If you really want wisdom. Don't rely on your own wisdom. Read the Proverbs because according to Scripture, this is the wisest of the wisest. Solomon, right? Willingness and ignorance, folks, don't go well together, by the way. I have seen this over and over. Over and over. And then we attribute it to God. Well, it was God's will. No, it was your will. That's why you're not moving forward. That's why you're not prospering. That's why you're stuck where you're at. And you will continue to be stuck because you're not using wisdom. You're not applying the word properly. If you are too eager, you will miss the road, folks. Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes, unfortunately. But the idea is, we all make mistakes, right? But the idea is, are we learning from our mistakes? not to come down on mistakes, it's what are we doing with the mistakes? Are we learning from the mistakes? Or are we doing it all over again? In other words, going for another 40 year tour around the mountain, going around the mountain, going around the mountain, going around the mountain, and it's like, you know, 40 years later, we're still at the base of the mountain. We're not going up. You'd be surprised that a lot of people don't notice this. A lot of people are at the base of the mountain, and they're like, oh, this is normal. It's not normal, folks. You're supposed to be going up into the mountain. You're supposed to be prospering. We should be zealous first and foremost for truth, folks. Titus 2.14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from what? All iniquity. And purify what? Into himself a peculiar people. Zealous for what? Good works. See, the blood of Yeshua, kind of like what Pinchas did, brought the nation into repentance. In which, by the way, at the end of the parasha, that's why we read that what? The offerings for the sacrifices for all the festivals. If you notice there, all the festivals are repeated. Leviticus 23 is repeated in this parasha. Why? We already did it in Leviticus 23. Why are we repeating it here? Because they just committed idolatry. That's the message. That's the message in here. Look, Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, right? Be what? Zealous, therefore, and what? Repent. It's not just good enough for you to be zealous. You need to be zealous, have wisdom, and repent. All those three elements need to exist, folks, in order for you to see the difference. So because of Pinchas' zeal for righteousness, folks, and his action on stopping the idolatry, meaning lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Without Torah. Let's keep that in mind. Because that's what Pinchas stopped. That was the zeal of Pinchas. The zeal of Pinchas was God's law and stopping lawlessness. A prophetic promise was given. Because of that zeal that he had, now it's in this prophetic promise that we see the revelation more in depth about the Messiah. Let's look at this promise. It says in here, Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, it says. And it shall be to him, but not just to him, and to his descendants after him, the covenant for a perpetual priesthood, 
because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So let's start in here. It says, therefore, say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. It says, Lachen omer o emor, hineni noten lo et brit shalom. It says. So, this is very, very interesting because he says, hineni, I, behold, I will give to him lo et brit. This covenant of peace is accompanied with the Aleph Tav. Now, what's really amazing about this is that if you were to go in the Torah school, which hopefully next year we have the building, I will have a table set up, and we will have the Torah scroll open, and you guys can see for yourself that Pastor Cortez is not making up stories. He's not, he's not going cuckoo. He's there. I'm not seeing things yet. I'm not there yet. Okay? So... So, let's see how this is actually written in the Torah scroll. Because, and by the way, how this is written in the Torah scroll, I want you to ask yourself a question. How do you interpret that into English? It says in here that he's going to give him the Aletat Brit HaShalom. Now, the thing with Shalom is, what is Shalom? It means soundness, welfare. It can also mean peace. Okay? In the Torah scroll, however we see something very prophetic. It is actually a broken vav in shalom. Now there's a meaning for that broken vav in shalom. If you notice with the broken vav in shalom, you have what it appears the sages say to be a yod, which it signifies a hand. And this signifies a spear, like a javelin. So in the broken shalom, we have a spear going in through our hand, essentially. Now this connects to the covenant of peace, by the way. Let's look at this and see. The broken vav represents a yod and a shaft or a spear. A picture of what would happen to Yeshua in order to bring us to a covenant of peace. An example of stopping the effects of the plague, folks. Now, you want to hear something interesting? Let me go back in here. This broken vav in here, a vav, in the pictograph Hebrew, represents a nail as something that you bind it together. But the sages of Israel also have an understanding of this vav because it represents number six in the Hebrew alphabet. The vav in, in Jewish understanding represents a man. So, we can also see this that the vav representing a man, it is the man who is broken. In other words, the covenant of peace will come once this man is broken and the spear is gone through his hand. Isn't that amazing? Amen. That we see, how do you translate that in your King James Version? You can't. This is the importance of Hebrew. It's not because we sound very cool speaking Hebrew. It's because this right here in the Torah school is filled with stuff like this. By the way, you won't even find this in your Bibles. Even in a Hebrew Bible. My Hebrew Bible doesn't have that. Only in a Torah school you'll find it. Really, really amazing. So let's, let's now we see that, that the broken man, when he says that I'm going to give him a covenant of peace, it is contingent upon the man being broken. 
this man who's going to be broken in peace and who is going to be pierced in his hands. Do you realize that right here the gospel is already revealed in the Old Testament? We didn't have to wait for Mark, Luke, and John to come and say it. It's already here for us. And believe it or not, the ancient rabbis of Israel understood this. Look, Hershumar says this, for the covenant of Pinchas is shalom, he says. Restore, now listen to this, shalom restore to its completeness. Now wait a minute, how do you restore shalom to completeness? Isn't it shalom completeness? Hmm. Not necessarily. Because shalom with a vav just means peace, but the root of shalom is shalem without a vav, in other words. Let's see the difference. It says, where the zeal of Pincha is required, the peace has been broken. And the struggle of Pinchas is, now that's what he's saying, the struggle of Pinchas is aimed at restoring true peace. This is what they're saying that Pinchas is a symbolic of the Mashiach. What Pinchas was trying to do, and the act that he did, was to restore Shalem. Look. So it says that the struggle of Pinchas aim at restoring true peace. He fights so that Shalom, with a vav, should be against Shalem, without a vav. What is Shalem? Shalem is truly wholeness, truly completeness, which is where we get Shalom, peace. Because what is the, res what is the result when you have true completeness in you? Peace kind of produces that, you know. So the idea is to restore back Shalom. So we understand that what Pinchas did was for restoration, essentially. Look, Psalms 22, 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. The whole piercing of the hands, we see it in the word shalom in this parashah. Already revealed just in the Hebrew word alone. Isaiah 53, 4, 5 says, Surely he has borne our grief and has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom. That's what Pinchas did, the restoration of shalom. And with his wounds we are healed. The broken vav, which is symbolic to the broken man, is to restore complete shalom to his people. Folks, I can just sit here today and cover the whole gospel just in this right here. Because that is the gospel. The gospel is to restore something. But it's not to restore us to lawlessness. That's where we're going wrong today. We are saying that Yeshua's death on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, liberated us from the law. That's contrary to what Isaiah 53, Isaiah 56, Isaiah chapter 8, and this parashah Pinchas teaches us. In other words, what I'm trying to basically tell you is that the witnesses don't collaborate with that statement. So, Numbers 25, 13, we went on here, says, And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood. So the aftermath of what Pinchas did was for the restoration of Shalom, but not just the restoration of Shalom, it goes beyond that. It is also for what? It says in here, lo lisreo acharav 
בעברית כחונה, עולם תחת. It's saying here that this it also will be to him and to his sea, לארות. It is from the Hebrew word zara, which is talking about the sea. Now what's interesting in here is that this is in singular form. Kind of like with the promise of Abraham. He says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Singular. See, Galatians shares that the seed is Messiah. So it's saying that this promise of what Pinchas did is securing the Messiah and the work of the Messiah, the covenant of Kehunat. What is Kehunat? It's Kohen. It's from the root word Kohen, which means a priest. So it is the covenant of priests. It says in here, Kehunat Olam, which is forever and ever. But look what it says in here. Tachat. You know what Tachat means? It literally means your reward. It is saying that because of what Pinchas did, he secured this seed, Messiah, essentially, because Galatians says it's Messiah. And that through this seed, the reward for his descendants is not going to be a Ferrari. It's not going to be a $3.5 million home, although the, big, the, the Jerusalem is pretty big, made out of gold. I must say. But, in reality, the real reward is that they will be a priesthood. That's important. Are we excited about becoming a priesthood? Amen. If we're not, we need to examine our hearts. Truth be told, look. Kehuna olam tachat. Your reward eternally is this priesthood, essentially. Now, Peter is addressing to the same audience. Once you were not a people. Gentiles. So Gentiles have been promised a what? A royal priesthood. This is amazing, folks. Please understand this. Because if you've been promised a royal priesthood, my question to you is this. What priesthood do you belong to? Do you belong to the priests of the Midianites? To Baal Peor? Or do you belong to the priest that is eternal, Hashem himself? Why? <clears throat> because if you belong to the priests of the nations, then you're going to be teaching lawlessness, because that's what the priests of the nations do. They teach lawlessness. They teach you don't need God's word. They teach the Sabbath is abolished. They teach you can eat your ham sandwich and your eggs with it while you're at it. They teach all these different things. They teach you don't have to keep those festivals anymore. We have new ones today that you can follow. Folks, open your eyes. This is exactly what Israel went through in the wilderness. That is the whole purpose that you can understand it. So Peter says that now you're part of this royal priesthood. Why does he say that? Because it connects to what? The promise given to Pinchas for what he did. And he said that I'm going to guarantee them a olam kohona. That is an eternal priesthood. It's amazing how the connection is there for the Gentiles as well. Revelation 3.5 says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Why white garments, folks? Who wore white garments? The priesthood. To be specific, white linen garments. That's what the priesthood wore. That was, they could not wear wool when they went in to do the, the, the work of the sanctuary. It had to be linen. Interesting. Look what it says. 
They're going to be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is Yeshua speaking, by the way. He's saying that in this day when this comes, this multitude of people are going to be wearing white garments. So now I want to end with this, folks. I want to connect them here. This story of Pinchas took me back to the Halel. Anybody familiar with the Halel in here? The Halel is a major prayer that they do in Israel. Typically, the Halel connects with the triumphal entry of the king coming into Israel. The Halel usually uh, always was always sung, especially during the feast, but specifically in the Feast of Sukkot. In the Feast of Sukkot, they will always sing the Halel during those days of the, of the actual feast, the days of uh, the seven days. So we're going to connect the Halel with the triumphal entry of the Messiah and the eternal priesthood of Pinchas. What is the connection in all these? Let's see this in here so we can learn something, hopefully. The Mishnah, for instance, in Sukkah 4, says this. How was the command to take the willow fulfilled? It's talking about Sukkot, by the way. Okay? There was a place below Jerusalem called the Motzah. Okay? Tither the people descended and gathered uh, droppings willow branches. <clears throat> These they brought and erected at the side of the altar the tips inclining over it. While this was doing, a blast, a long note, and again, a blast were blown. So, <clears throat> what the Mishnah is teaching in here is that during the Feast of Sukkot, the people will grab palm branches. Okay? And they will encircle the city with these palm branches, and as they're encircling the city with these palm branches, they're reciting the Hallel. The Hallel is, uh, uh, again, a prayer that you find in the Psalms. Specifically, I'm going to cover it here. And as doing this, they will make their way to the altar, and they will encircle the altar, and then they will lay the palms there and, and around the altar. Now, this is a major connection in here, what we read in the gospel. And I'm going to tie it in for you so you can see it. So, every day they made one circuit around the altar and recited the verses, O Lord, help us. O Lord, prosper us. Rabbi Yehuda said the words, I and he help us. Were also said on the particular day for using the willows, that is the seventh of the festival. They made seven circuits around the altar. Johanan ben Berroka said they fetched branches of palms and threshed them to pieces on the sides of the altar. Thence the day was called the branch dressing day. Directly afterwards, the children threw down their lulavs and the citrons and said, O altar, to God and to thee, O altar. Now what's interesting about this is that this connects to Psalms 118.19, which is part of what the Halev says. Listen to this. Open to me the gates of righteousness. They will actually sing this during the Feast of Sukkot. Now, during the Feast of Sukkot, the king was supposed to enter into Jerusalem and offer the first sacrifice for the Feast of Sukkot. Interesting. The king was the first one to have to offer that sacrifice, and then the people will follow after him. So, and as the king is entering into Jerusalem, they are actually praying this Psalms right here. Look what it says. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. 
This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation, my Yeshua. The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner, their cornerstone. Now keep in mind that as they're doing this, the king is entering to Jerusalem to offer the first sacrifice. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in His eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, Hoshiana, Hoshiana. Save us and pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it says. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival procession with branches upon the horns of the altar. You know when this was fulfilled also, folks? I'm going to share this because this connects to the promise of Pinchas. You see, we have to understand that in the Feast of Sukkot, all the priests will have to be gathered there and perform this service. Now, watch this. What we just read right now, as the, the king is entering to Jerusalem, in John 12, 12, look what took place. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, saying, Hoshiana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see the prophetic mm -hmm. version of what's going to happen in here? When Yeshua entered to Jerusalem and what that's going to take place in the future? When they were carrying those palms, it's because they were celebrating Sukkot folks, which the triumphal king enters to make the first sacrifice on behalf of all Israel. Pop, contrary to popular belief, it was not Palm Sunday that was celebrating Sukkot. This was a custom that they were actively doing. But if we don't understand Torah and the Jewish roots, we're going to buy into the whole Palm Sunday and miss really what's taking place in here, prophetically. <clears throat> Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. you imagine when Yeshua was entering with the donkey into Jerusalem? They were reciting the Haled. They were reciting this. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the palms were what? Thrown on the floor. <clears throat> and Yeshua found a young donkey... <clears throat> and said on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Revelation 7-9. Now, I'm going to go ahead and uh, end it with this, because the connection in here of what Yeshua did when he entered to Jerusalem, and when the people were reciting the Halem, they were reciting, you know, uh, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. And the palm branches are waving the palm branches as the king enters with the donkey. Which, by the way, Hazak connects that with Solomon. When Solomon entered to Jerusalem and he was anointed king, guess what he used? A donkey. Revelation 7-9 is the fulfillment. The fulfillment of Pinchas' prophetic word that God gave him, and the promise that God gave him, which connects to Sukkot and the triumphant of the king. Look, 
So we read what Yeshua did. Now in Revelation 7 9, there's going to be another, another rehearsal of that. Not a rehearsal, a fulfillment of the rehearsal. It says, After this I looked. This hasn't happened yet. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, says. Can you imagine? From the time of Adam, all the way up to that time, all the people of God are going to be there, folks. That's why it says that it cannot be numbered. It's not because there's a bunch of us. It's because you're combining a remnant from every generation, from the time of Adam to that time, whatever this time is going to be. That's going to be quite a bit of people. You're talking about over 6,000 years of remnants together in one place. So, it says in here, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation. Key word, every nation. From all tribes and people and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What are we going to be doing with white robes and palm branches? The eternal priesthood that was promised to be us. The fulfillment will be there where we will be dressed in white and the white is significant of the priesthood of Melchizedek that the very sages of Israel say connects with. And what season are we going to be doing this? Sukkot. Where it says, what is the Feast of Sukkot? We dwell with Him. And that day, Yeshua will enter into the gates of Jerusalem with His priesthood on white, fulfilling what the promise of Pinchah was. And we will be standing there saying, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of Adonai. So I have to admit something. Um, this week when I read when I read the half tour portion, I actually read the wrong one at first. <laughs> um, because we have a double portion next week, um, I, I read the second, and I knew that last, next week is going to be the last one. I read I read the second to last half tour portion, but because it's a double portion, there's two portions of half tour for next week. So yesterday I was doing my studying, and I opened up the Bible, and I went, well, let me just make sure that I'm reading the right thing, just once once more, and. Lo and behold, I've read the wrong portion. And I'm like, okay, well, I've, I've got several hours. I can work on this. Let me, let me see where I want to go. And, of course, we open up with our portion. And it, and it says that um, when Ahab got back to, to, to Jezebel uh, and reported all that uh, Elijah had done, she was very angry with him, right? And she was going, she, she actually says, So let the mighty ones do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of, of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And so I was going to begin to focus on the fear that he, had, that he was experiencing. He was allowing fear to overwhelm him. And the Lord said, nope, that's not what you're going to talk about. I got something else I want you to talk about. You're going to... I'm going to get to it. <laughs> so one of the things that I always like to do is I like to, I like to look at, see, see what some of the sages say, just kind of like what Richard does. And of course you guys know that I like to use the OU.org website. Um, uh, Orthodox Union. And so I went there again yesterday. And I read that Dr. Gidon Rostin, one of the rabbis who writes there, um, pointed something out that, um, that I didn't know, but I can certainly see, and I hope you see it also. 
He says that rabbinic tradition identifies Elijah as Pinchas. And so immediately we begin our connection to our Torah portion today. Pinchas acted to stop the plague from physical and spiritual adultery of the nation. Well, just prior to our half Torah portion, Elijah kills 450 prophets of Baal. And that's why Jezebel is, at, is angry with him. Pinchas was rewarded with a covenant of peace of an, as an everlasting priesthood because he was ardent for his Elohim. Elijah was also ardent for the words, the righteousness of his Elohim. Just like Pinchas. There's so many connections. A priest's general task is one who contributes to God's goals for the world by acting peacefully and welcomingly. Okay? So we're going to touch on, on, on that specifically here in a moment. And, it, and he also goes on to say that a violent act has its time and place. And we saw that, right? Pinchas committed a violent act in righteousness, and God rewarded him for it. But then he says to Pinchas, now I'm going to give you a covenant of peace. Right? So the rest of his days should very, should very much be peaceful. He needs to know that, in, that, in, that, priest, that holy priest needs to understand that, that is neither the preferred nor the common way to bring people cl to closer, closer to God through violence. Right? So violence, is, we don't just go out committing violence hoping that we're going to bring people to God because that doesn't do that. Right? It really pushes people away. So we're going to talk about that. So how do we draw people to God? Well, we use the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, trustworthiness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no Torah. There's no law against those. There's not. We can receive those when we understand and believe and receive the Holy Spirit, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so let's talk about the gentleness because we have one. We know one. He is our leader, our head, and he was gentle. Webster's 1828 says of gentle, it is one who is mild, meek, soft, bland, not rough, harsh, or severe, as a gentle nature, a temper or disposition, a gentle manner, a gentle address, a gentle voice. There are times when I didn't have this microphone and you guys are straining to hear me because sometimes I have a gentle voice. Right? It's also one who is tame, peaceable, not wild, turbulent, or refractory as a gentle horse or a beast, soothing, pacific, treating with mildness, not violent, to make genteel, to raise from the vulgar. Now I'm going to get to the word genteel in just a second, but we know what the vulgar is, right? Those of us who have spent plenty of time in the world have been raised out of the vulgarity of the world. I was a very vulgar individual at one point in my life. Lots of words that were inappropriate and drew nobody to God because I wasn't one drawing to God. Vulgar. So it's genteel. Polite, well-bred, easy and graceful in manners or in behavior. Having the manners of well-bred people as genteel company or genteel guests. It, a genteel one is polite, easy and graceful, becoming well-bred persons as genteel manners or behavior. Decorous, refined, free from anything low or vulgar as a genteel comedy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7 through 7 reads, Trustworthy is the word. If a man longs for the position of an overseer, he desires good work. What well, overseer is what in, in, in the kingdom of God? They oversee people. 
right? They lead people. Richard is an overseer. Athens, Mark, myself, we're in training to be overseers so that we can help to guide the congregations, the assembly of Hashem. An overseer then should be blameless, the husband of one wife, sober, sensible, orderly, kind to strangers, able to teach, not given to wine, no brawler, but gentle. There's that word gentle. Not quarrelsome, no lover of silver, one who rules his own house well, having his children in subjection with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he look after the assembly of God? Not a new convert, lest he become puffed up with pride and fall into the judgment of the devil. And I'm going to speak to you about that really quickly. When I was a new convert to faith, and I sought a position of leadership, of guidance, I was too new, and I was told, whoa, 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 hold on. You've got to be doing this for a little while. We need to, we need to see the fruit of, of, of your repentance. We need to know, because you're new to our our assembly, new to our church, we need to know who you are, right? That wasn't this church, but that's the right way of doing things. I was in this assembly a long time before I was approached to be in leadership because the fruits were shown and needed to be shown. We don't just invite somebody to leadership right off the bat. He should even have a good witness from those who are outside. What does that mean? Well, that means that those who are not in the assembly of God should be able to say, oh, that's a great individual. He is always kind. He treats people right. We may not always like the way he treats us because he holds us to a standard, but he does right by us. He's good to us. He doesn't use vulgarity, right? His walk is blameless, even outside of the assembly. Lest he fall into reproach of the snare of the devil. Paul continues to write in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 26, A servant of the master should not quarrel, but be gentle towards all, able to teach and patient when wronged, in meekness instructing those who are in opposition, lest somehow Elohim gives them the repentance unto a thorough knowledge of the truth. Right? So the idea is to draw people in, and we're not going to do that if we're pushing them away. As an unrepentant one, though the word was what I needed to hear when my brother would preach it to me, or not even preach it, he'd just read it straight out of the Bible. I didn't want to hear that. And yet, eventually, it drew me in. It was the words that I needed to hear when it was time for me to come to the Lord. So blessed be his name that though my brother, though I might not have liked it, my brother provided those words for me to hear to provide the example of faith to someone outside of the faith, to draw me in. So unto a thorough knowledge of the truth, and they come to their senses. They wake up. He, he removes the scales from their eyes. Out of the snare of the devil, having been cap taken captive by him to do his desire. Now, aren't we all, those who have gone astray, doing the wiles of the devil? Aren't we in his snare? James writes in chapter 3, starting at 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good behavior, his works in meekness of wisdom. Meekness, gentle. We're going to talk about meek in just a moment. But if you have bitter jealousy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast against and lie against the truth. This is not the wisdom coming down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and self-seeking are, there is confusion in every foul deed. But the wisdom from above is first clean, then peaceable, gentle, ready to obey, filled with compassion and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of the righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let's talk about the word meek. Webster's 1828. Always a good source for a lot of the words that we use in our faith. Mild of temper, soft, gentle. Oh, sounds like a little bit of circular reasoning. Gentle is meek and meek is gentle, but that's okay. We'll go on. Not easily provoked or irritated. Yielding, given to forbearance under injuries. In Numbers chapter 12, verses three, verse 3, we read, The man Moshe was very humble. Right? We, we, we recently read that. But it, it goes on to say, More than all men who were on the face of the earth. It even goes, because it's talking about uh, Miriam and Aaron speaking against Moses. It even goes on to say that the Lord calls them to the tabernacle, the, the, the tent of meeting, and he calls them out. He says, he says, you guys, how dare do you speak against Moses, my servant? I speak with him face to face. He sees the image of God. Moses, so very humble, very meek. Another definition, appropriately humble in an evangelical sense, submissive to the divine will. Oh, there's one that we tend to rebel against, the divine will, because we're always fighting the flesh, right? And yet, in humility, we need to be submitting ourselves to the divine will, whatever His will is for each and every one of us. And that's what humility is. We come to Him giving up ourselves, recognizing that we no longer own ourselves, that He owns us, that we are His. But more importantly, that he knows so very much more than us and that by relinquishing our own desires and our own will, he will guide us in safety and in wisdom in everything that we do. That individual is not proud, self-sufficient, or refractory. They're not peevish and apt to complain of divine dispensations. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, I'm going to read it. You may not know it right off the top of your head, but I'm going to read it and you're going to go, oh yeah. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I shall give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your beings. My yoke is gentle and my burden is light. Now, I'm going to get back to that last statement that my burden is light as a side note at the, at the end of my portion because I want to share what he, what I, what, the revelation that I had. But he's pointing to Jeremiah chapter 6, six verse 16. He says, where it says, Thus says Hashem, stand in the ways and seek, ask for the old paths where the, good, where the way is good and walk in it. Find rest for yourselves. But they said, we do not walk in it. Yeshua is saying, the old ways are good. They are easy. The burden that they give you, that, that is put upon you, is something you can carry. We read in Deuteronomy that the word is near you. It's not far. It's easy. You can follow it. So for us to say that it's too hard is for us to just say that we're incapable. That's the individual that's incapable, not the word. The word is achievable. James chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change nor shadow of turning. Having purposed it, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us out of the darkness into the light by his word of truth. For us to be a kind of first fruits. 
of his creatures. So then, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of Elohim. The wrath of man is not found in one who is humble, meek, gentle. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and those who are in authority, in order that we lead a calm and peaceable life in all reverence and seriousness, for this is good and acceptable before Elohim, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Dr. Rothstein finished up, wrapped up what he had written that I was studying yesterday. He says, especially if we follow the rabbinic tradition that identifies Elijah as Pinchas, the Haftorah tells us of a time when he reached the end of his rope. And you can look at it as it being Pinchas, if Elijah is Pinchas then Pinchas has reached the end of his rope. I can't do the peaceful thing anymore. I've got to act. Just like I acted in the beginning. The end of his ability to look the other way at the Jewish people's many failings while working patiently to bring them closer to their Creator. It says once he no longer could do that, his time on earth was up. Not as a punishment, for he does rise to heaven in a fiery chariot, but as a recognition that his effective service to God had reached an end. When we forsake what God has given us, though we may still be his, we're no longer useful to bring someone into the kingdom. We need to be very careful that we remain humble, meek, gentle, so that we draw people in at all times. Because... The last thing we ever want to do is push away someone who has been called and is on their, on their way, trickling in, and we push them away. We also don't want to push away those who are in our assembly already. It's very important that we treat all with gentleness and meekness. But let me go back on a side note, because this was really interesting. Oops, I went a little too far. So we hear the Lord say, For my yoke is gentle and my burden is light. I looked at the word in the Greek that is translated here as light. And it means that which is not heavy. Right? It's not burdensome. So the yoke that he puts on us, just like the yoke of the oxen, oxen are very, very strong and they can carry a heavy load. We read in our half-tour portion today that there were 12 oxen that were, that were pulling the, the, the plow for Elisha. That's a lot of oxen. That, that earth must have been really rocky. Maybe it was just really hard. We read that the rain had, had, had been brought back by Elijah. But 12 oxen is a lot to be plowing. And yet, they were there. Well, they had a heavy burden. There's 12 of them to do the work. Yeshua is telling us that his burden, the, the burden of the Torah, is not something that is heavy. It is easily done. But I believe that I saw in what he said a parable, though he didn't identify it as a parable. My burden is light. We are called to be the light of the world, just as he is the light of the world. Pankos showed the light, the righteousness of God in what he did in his violent act. 
Elijah revealed the light that was given to him, the torch that had been passed to him by Hashem to be the prophet of Israel. And yet, he's telling us also, the burden that I carry is light. As the light of the world is carrying a light that draws us in. Because when we are in darkness and we cannot see, we go towards light. So I believe that in saying that, he was saying two different things. My yoke is not heavy, but it is brightness. And so let us also be bright, but let's do that brightness and gentleness and in meekness so that we can draw into the kingdom of God just like Yeshua, Elijah, Elisha, because they spoke his truth and his righteousness. Yes, they were persecuted, but they called the ones who were called into the kingdom. That's your half tour today. So we are going to be discussing the the setting of the Torah, the half tour or the Beit Hadashah, sorry, with the connection to the Torah. And we're going to try, I am going to attempt to connect the Messiah to the covenant of peace and also to the legacy of Moses, the leadership being passed down to whom God anoints. So we're going to see those events point to Yeshua as to who he was talking to. So first let's go ahead and go to the feast of the setting, which is the feast of Passover. That's how this half, the Brit Hadashah begins, the New Testament coverage. So we see here that there are sojourners from afar and that they're buying and selling at the temple of the courts. This is why our Messiah is very upset. But let's look and see what really was the sin. Was the sin selling and buying sacrifices or was the sin selling and buying at the temple? So first we're going to break it down with selling and buying sacrifices. I have here Deuteronomy 14, 24 to 26. It says, And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. So we see here that he's given provision for those who are traveling from far to turn it into money and spend the money as you desire. So we have provision in the Torah to buy our sacrifices. We don't actually have to carry it from, from hundreds of miles, carry this poor thing all that way to break my back so I can then offer it to the Lord. No, he's giving us the provision. So we see that selling and buying sacrifices is not the actual problem. So let's go and look at the selling at the selling and buying at the temple, if that's really what he's upset about. So we have Leviticus 6.26. It says, And the priest who offer it for sin shall eat it in the holy place. It shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Psalms 132.7, it tells us, let us go up to the sanctuary of the Lord and let us worship at the where? The footstool of the Lord. So we're at the throne of God. So we're looking at these key terms and it's regarding, when he says the sanctuary of the Lord, he's talking about the temple. So Jeremiah 7.11, it tells us, has this house, meaning the temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? 
Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. One more, Isaiah 56, 7. I will bring them to my holy mountains of Jerusalem, and I will fill them with the joy in my house of prayer. And I will accept their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, because my temple will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. So we're looking at all of these descriptions of the temple in these verses. And here is very funny how Jeremiah 7:11 Messiah actually quoted it in Matthew when he's talking about that my house of my in this house called by my name became a den of robbers. Why did he call into the den of robbers? We're going to go into that in a little bit, but we're going to look at the temple. So the temple is a holy place. It's been declared by the prophets and the scriptures. It is a footstool of the throne of God of Hashem, a place of worship and a house of prayers. What do we have a problem with buying and selling at the temple? Buying and selling comes with evil intent. Whether we can be as holy as we want to be or try to be as righteous as we can be, there will always be an element of mankind's heart trying to make money out of something. And in this case, we understand that buying and selling is a common behavior. So what is the charge? Matthew 21, this is another testimony of this exact same event. We're going to read Matthew 21, 12 to 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the temples of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves. And what is he doing? He's quoting out of Jeremiah. What happened in the first temple is being relived in the second temple. The same charges that Elijah had on the people of Israel at the time for buying and selling because of the wickedness. Messiah is in the temple, again, the second temple, having the same charge that he has against them. So we see in Mark 11:16, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. So the problem is not that we're buying and selling sacrifices. It's the fact that we're doing it at a holy place that is a, we're doing a common practice which as much as a man can try to be honorable and be and be righteous in their buying and selling there will always be that element of trying to use men trying to gain out of righteousness so selling and buying is common and it is not to be mingled with the holy things of the lord so what was the charge again not that they were selling and buying sacrifices at the temple but that selling and buying is common and again that the temple is holy and that we are not to mix the common with the holy. So now that we have that understood, why he got upset, why his zealousness came up over him, it is taking the holy things of God and just mixing it in with the things of common, common practices is very wrong and we need to be very careful here today where we are that we're not mixing the common with the with the holy and that we're not mixing the profane with the holy if it's holy maintain it holy keep it holy if it is common keep it common do not try to make it holy because that's another mistake that we make we try to make a common practice or a behavior that god says it is common it is for you to use on a, as a common practice and we try to turn it and make it holy religious and pious so we need to be very wise so let's go back to the Torah portion connection Pinchas zealousness stopped the wrath of God in the in in the camp of Israel 
And the zealousness of Yeshua stopped the wrath of God in, on humanity. And we're going to, I'm going to attempt to make this connection. And may the Spirit be upon me and guide my words so that I may be able to uh, reveal what the Father has shown me. So we have Numbers 25.11. It says, Pinchas, son of Eliezer, the grandson of Aaron, the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites by being zealous among them as I was. So I stopped destroying all Israel as I intended to do in my zealous anger. John 2.17 Then the disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Zeal for your house will consume me. So we see that he is, a, he is zealous for, his, for, for the righteousness, the temple of the Lord. And we do know that Mashiach came in the likeness of the spirit of Elijah. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We also do know that Mashiach at that time came in the, in the spirit of Moses, teaching the people the correct way, where the, where, what is the right way of worship, what is the right way of interpreting the basic principles that are in the word, how to properly worship and keep things holy. So we know that he came in the spirit of Moses, and we do understand that in the Torah portion, Mo, the legacy of Moses was to pass down the, his position, because he was going to die, his position, he was to pass it down to, to one who God had anointed to take his place and to accomplish the task that's at hand. And we're going to see that connection between the son of David, Solomon, and David himself with the connection of the temple. And we're also going to see the covenant of peace of Pinchas and how it's connected to the Mashiach when he returns to build this temple. So Pinchas received the covenant of peace, and it is Shalom. I'm not going to go into this teaching. I'm just going to go over it very quickly. Shalom, which is peace. With the broken vav becomes shalem, which is complete to make whole, and that is because of his zeal. This is what he is going, that, that is the, the, what was promised him, was this covenant. Now this covenant is on Messiah himself, and we're going to see this. So the zealous action of Yeshua, which we see here, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I'm going to show how Mashiach, with the covenant of peace that is upon Pinchas, is going to erect this temple. What, is the de what does he mean? Is this actually talking about him rising from the dead in three days? Or is it actually literally talking about the temple? Well, I'm going to make some connections. And we'll see what, this, what the Bible reveals as we go along. So we see that in Yeshua's sign was that in the third day. Now we do know that one day equals a thousand years. And we know that he will raise, which is the, G, the Greek word 1453. And it is the temple while he is the Sar Shalom. What is the Sar Shalom? We say that every Shabbat, the Prince of Peace. And we know that the Mashiach is known as the Prince of Peace, and there's scripture on that. Messiah of Israel, the Messiah of Israel is known as the Sar Shalom, which is the Prince of Peace. And we're going to make that connection with Solomon. King David had the heart to build the temple of the Lord. But God said, you will not. It is not for you to do. It is for your son to build my temple. And what was his son's name? Solomon. It's not here. Solomon is, if we look into his name, is H8010, which means peace. Peace comes from the root word of Shalem, which is this word, Shalem, 7965. Solomon the king, the Sar Shalom of peace, will build the temple. It is a foreshadow of what is to come in the millennium reign. The son of David, the seed of David, is the one who will erect the temple. There's scripture, and I didn't find it because this is last minute that the Father put it in my heart to share this. 
But the, there's prophecy that the son of David will be the one to erect the temple in the day. And what happened? Solomon actually did. But now we're going to see how Yeshua, when he returns as Messiah, is the one to raise the temple. That's not canceling out the prophecy of the son of perdition that's going to change the time and seasons and defile the sacrifices. Because in order for sacrifices to be enacted, you only need an altar. You don't need the whole temple. You only need an altar. So it does not cancel out that prophecy. So with Mashiach being the one to actually raise the temple, we're going to see where scripture supports that. Hosea 6, 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. And he has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Has that not happened? Have we not defiled his name? Have we not rebelled? Has he not torn us? Has he not healed us? Has he not struck us down? And has he not bind us up? This is a cyclical behavior. This has happened. We repent. He breaks us. We, I mean, he, we, we sin. He breaks us. We repent and he binds us up. It is a constant cycle. But here we have a prophecy that says that after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that he, that we may live before him. This is also talking about the resurrection of the third day of his return. As he died and was crucified, he came to life. Yes, this is also referring to that. But it is also connecting the millennium reign. When he died in our timeline, third day, considering it 3,000 years, we can see the prophecy that in that millennium that he returns as king is when his, he will then erect that third temple that we are praying for, his, for him to return to us. So let's look at the word raise. It is to awaken, to rise. In the Hebrew is kum, to rise, to stand, to establish, to confirm. So the connection to, the, to this is connected to the covenant of peace, meaning that the word, the covenant of peace is to be made whole and to restore. And that happens when he raises us from the dead. When he, and when is the resurrection? The first resurrection comes at the millennium when he returns as king, as the prince of peace. That will be the rising of the holy ones, the resurrection of his people. So now we're going to see how that is connected to, to him being the prince of peace. In Isaiah 9-6, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom. So we know that the rising of the saints, the millennium dwelling, will be when we will see that, that throne or that temple being restored. So Yeshua's actions made the point. He's the one to restore and make them whole so that they can live in the presence of the Lord. That is the whole purpose of the temple. Why do we wait until Mashiach to make the temple? Well, guess what, people? We had two opportunities to make it right. He's not going to say, okay, no, wait, we're not doing this again. You'll get the third temple when I become king, and I bring the peace, and I am the, the one ruling and reigning, and you will worship me with your Sabbath rest properly, because that's then I will establish the proper form of, service, of worship. So until then, we will not get another temple. That temple, it is an honor to have. It is an honor that mankind is able to go before his presence and have his presence here on earth and have him literally be manifested before us. Until then, our prayers is for that restoration and for us to walk in righteousness so then that we can be 
walk into that promise that he that he gave to Pinchas and have that everlasting priesthood that will be placed upon us, as well as we will then be able to accomplish the tasks that we are that we were intended to do. The first two temples that mankind lost the opportunity to do so. So Ezekiel 37:26, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give them their land and increase their numbers, and I will put my temple among them forever. So John 2:19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It is him speaking. I will return, and I will be the one to establish the proper way of worship. I will put my heart, my spirit upon you, and you will walk in righteousness. So the death and the conclusion, the death and resurrection of Yeshua started the process of the restoration and the completeness of Israel. When he came as Bnei Joseph and died and resurrected, began that process of restoration. The raising of the temple is part of the restoration. Oh, let me go back. Sorry. The raising of the temple is part of the restoration and completeness and the completeness process. At his return, he will be the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom. And he will raise the temple and reinstate proper worship throughout all the earth. So his zealousness has turned the wrath of Yahweh, of Hashem, of Yahweh, of Yorhevavhe, of Yehovah, away from his people. And that is the or the Britash. Yeah. 